The first is one that I'm sure will be familiar to, uh, familiar to us, um, and it's Romans 8, 28 to 30. And here Paul writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Then we move over to Ephesians 1, uh, verses 3 to 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. It's the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Duncan, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's uh, great to see you. There we go. We've got sound. Some people say I don't need a microphone, but uh, I'm sure it helps. So, um, as I say, it's good to, uh, good to see you all. And uh, my friends, this afternoon, as Duncan has mentioned, we are thinking together about salvation. And salvation, as I'm quite sure you know, it is of supreme importance. It's at the very heart of God's message in the Bible. It's at the very heart of Jesus' mission to this earth. And it is, in fact, at the very heart of absolutely everything that we think and do and hope for as Christian people. But I do wonder if someone asked you to describe salvation in simple terms, how would you do it? How would you sum it all up in just a few words? Some might say that salvation is all about going to heaven. Others may say it's all about forgiveness. Still another, that it's all about living a changed life. Or some may say it's about being in a relationship with God. And none of those answers are wrong, are they? Because it's actually very difficult to describe salvation briefly. And that's because it's just so vast. 
so all-encompassing, so multifaceted. And the risk is that by focusing on just one element, we could actually reduce it down into something less than what it really is. And so tonight, we want to consider salvation in all of its fullness. We want to consider its many different parts that together make up the whole. And all up, we're going to actually look at 10 different elements, 10 different ways that the Lord describes his salvation to us in his word. And we're going to do that by focusing on our readings from Romans and from Ephesians, as Duncan has just read them for us. For you may have noticed how the Apostle Paul in those passages draws together many, many aspects of his salvation. For example, in just Romans 8 verse 30, he says, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And so we're going to delve into these passages but we're also going to draw on a variety of others in order to form a fuller picture. However, by looking at 10 different elements, we can, of course, only look at each one very briefly. This is going to be a very broad overview. But then next year, we're going to return to this and we're going to look at each of them in more detail. And our hope is that by doing this, that we will understand more clearly that we will trust more deeply and that we will marvel more joyfully at the glorious salvation that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first element that we want to look at this afternoon is election. In his book called Christian Beliefs, Wayne Grudem says this, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Election is sometimes called predestination, or simply God's choosing. Election reminds us that the entire salvation process begins with the Lord. He is the one who decided just who would receive his ultimate blessings. And he didn't do that by looking down through history and seeing who would eventually believe. No, but he did it simply based on his own wisdom and grace. But that makes election rather contentious. For there are many who balk at the idea that salvation is not initiated by us, that we we have no free will in this matter, that it is God who decides. And that's why it's especially important at this point for us to ground this in Scripture. In Romans chapter 8, we were told twice that we are predestined for salvation. And in Ephesians chapter 1, what does it say there? It says, For he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. It says, In love he predestined us in accordance with his pleasure and will. And it says, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. But there are many other references too. 
For example, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather his elect. John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Acts chapter 13, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And then there's also 1 Timothy chapter 1. God has saved us, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. This means that election is also very closely tied to some fundamental reform doctrines that we sometimes summarise as tulip. Maybe you've heard of total depravity, the belief that humanity is so lost in sin that no one could ever turn to God in their own strength. There is also what we call unconditional election, the belief that because of this depravity, God's choosing is not based on any merit of our own. And then there is also limited atonement, the belief that while Jesus' death was sufficient to save everyone, that he only came to die for the elect. And so, my friends, the starting point for us in understanding salvation in all of its fullness is election, the amazing truth that God chose us before the creation of the world. But now the second element is is calling. This moves us now from that time before creation into the present day. And in calling, we are talking about our initial contact with the gospel. Now, we need to understand that there are two ways that this word is used. First of all, there is what we call the general call of the gospel that goes to everyone. That's why, for example, in the Great Commission, we are told to tell all nations what Jesus has done and to urge them to believe. That's why, for example, in the parable of the wedding banquet, It says that many were called to attend, but then Jesus concludes, for many are invited, but few are chosen. But today, we actually want to focus on the other use of this word, what is referred to as the effective call of the gospel. And this is how God calls those whom he has chosen in such a way that they are compelled to listen and respond. So, back again in Romans chapter 8, it says, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And it says, those he predestined, he also called. Ephesians chapter 1 says, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. We also see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where it says, God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son. And also 1 Peter chapter 2, where it says, you declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Salvation starts with election, but the next step is calling, the way that God himself applies his gospel message to us in a way that we can understand 
and believe. But then very closely related to this is regeneration. This is how at the very same time as opening our ears to the gospel, God works within us an absolutely amazing transformation. His Holy Spirit indwells us and we move from spiritual death to spiritual life. And thus in Ephesians 1 it says, When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Regeneration was already described in Ezekiel chapter 36. There the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and will give you a heart of flesh. In John chapter 3, that well-known passage where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he says to him, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And then a couple of verses later, he explains that that means being born of water and the Spirit. And in Titus chapter 3, it says, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Just as we are not able to bring about our own physical birth, neither can we bring about our rebirth. It's wholly and solely the work of God. And again, in Reformed theology, we speak here of irresistible grace. If the Lord has decided that he will transform us, then we cannot resist. We will be saved. And so regeneration reminds us that while dead in sin, the Lord graciously gives us new life so that we can know him and trust him and love him, and serve him. Now the fourth element is what we call conversion. We've seen how God makes salvation happen. But now we look from the other side, from our own perspective. For while the Lord chooses us to respond to his gospel, calls us to respond to his gospel, and enlivens us to respond to his gospel we must still actually respond. I mean, what does it say in Mark chapter 1 as Jesus started his ministry? Did Jesus come to earth and proclaim to the people, do nothing, but just wait for the elect to be transformed? No, of course not. It says, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent. And believe the good news. Do you see, we must personally respond to the message of the gospel, albeit in God's strength. In his book, Saved by Grace, Anthony Hookemer says this. He says, conversion may be defined as the conscious act of a regenerate person in which he or she turns to God in repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. These are the two sides of the conversion coin. In Acts 21, Paul says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we are to be saved, then we must sorrowfully and humbly confess our sins 
and seek forgiveness from God. But at the same time, we must firmly trust in Jesus for that forgiveness and all of its benefits. That, my friends, is true conversion. Now, the next four elements are all to do with the ongoing impact of salvation in our lives. We've now seen what happens at the start, at that moment of calling, regeneration and conversion. But we now look at how we continue to be affected. And the first effect is what we call union with Christ. This is how salvation affects us spiritually. The Bible teaches us that when we are saved, we become one with Christ. We are in him and he is in us. We no longer live in isolation, but always in connection with our Saviour. And so our Ephesians passage begins with these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. (coughs) Later it says, he chose us in him. It says he has freely given us his glorious grace in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood. You also were included in in Christ when you heard the message of truth. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And 1 John chapter 4, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Because of our union with Christ, his sacrifice is our sacrifice. His righteousness is our righteousness. His spirit is our spirit. His strength is our strength. His life is our life. And his glory is our glory. We live in Christ and he lives in us. This is another vital element of salvation. But still another is justification. This reminds us that salvation not only affects us spiritually, but it also affects us legally. You see, because of our own sin, excuse me, because of our own sin, we stand guilty before God. We have broken his laws, ignored his commands, defied his will. And as a result, we deserve to come under his judgment condemnation and eternal punishment. But when we're saved, what happens? God declares that we are no longer guilty, but we are righteous in his sight. He forgives our sin because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross and he credits us with the perfect obedience that he achieved in his life. That's justification. Guilty sinners made not only innocent, but holy in God's sight. Romans chapter 8 says, Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, 
he also justified. Ephesians chapter 1 says, He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Why? To be holy and blameless in his sight. (coughs) And it also says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Think also of Romans chapter 5. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or think of Galatians chapter 2. A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. According to Millard Erickson in his book, Christian Theology, he says justification is God's action pronouncing sinners righteous in his sight. Thank you. We have been forgiven and declared to have fulfilled all that God's law requires of us. So that then brings us to the seventh aspect of salvation that we want to look at tonight. And this has to do with the fact that as a result of our election and calling, as a result of our regeneration and conversion, that we are now also in a new situation relationally. And we call this adoption. Not only are we in Christ and he in us, not only are we declared righteous, but we are also adopted into God's own family. That means that we can call him father. We're his precious children. We can know Jesus as our older brother. We are all together sisters and brothers in him. And we all share in one glorious inheritance. This too is in our passages today. Romans 8 says, Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And did you see in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. And it says, We have the Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. All the way back in John chapter 1, it says, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And earlier in Romans chapter 8, it says this, The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And so I'm quite sure that you can see that adoption is yet another beautiful facet of salvation. But there's still another ongoing effect of salvation in our lives. We're affected spiritually in our union with Christ, legally in justification, relationally in adoption, but we also are affected behaviourally in sanctification. And this is so important. We've already concluded that we are totally sinful in God's sight, 
but yet declared totally righteous by Jesus' blood. But what about our behaviour today? Can we simply rely on this justification and live however we please? Can we sin recklessly without remorse? Can we just focus on ourselves and our own pleasures, making no effort to serve the Lord? Well, the answer to that is a great big no. For how, my friends, how could we claim to truly know what Jesus suffered for us and not be moved to respond to him in in love and in obedience? How could we claim to truly know the, the amazing grace of God and yet not be compelled to live a life that pleases him? For my friends, the cross did not only deliver us from sin's condemnation, but it also delivered us from, the, from sin's control over our lives. To quote Gruden again, sanctification is a progressive work of both God and man that makes Christians more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in their actual lives. That's why in Romans 8, God says, it says God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. And in Ephesians 1, it says we're chosen by God to be for the praise of his glory. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. And in chapter 5 of that same book, it says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's be honest, friends. The Bible is just jam-packed full of God's instructions on how to live for him. There's the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament laws. There's the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings of Jesus. There's that section in every single epistle describing to us what it actually means to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. (coughs) There's absolutely no doubt that sanctification is another vital element of salvation. But now there's just two more. And the first of those is perseverance. So what's that? Well, returning to Hukuma, he says, Perseverance means that those who have true faith can lose that faith neither totally nor finally. In other words, a true Christian can never forfeit their salvation. I should add that perseverance is not based on the strength of our faith, but based on the strength of God's promise. And I should also add that this is the last of those fundamental reform doctrines, the P of Tulip, the perseverance of the saints. But where do we find this in the Word of God? Well, remember, first of all, in Romans 8, how we're told that that those who are predestined are called are justified, are glorified. God will take them whom he has chosen right through to the end. 
And remember in Ephesians chapter 1, how the Spirit, it says, is given to us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. There's also John chapter 6, where Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but will raise them up at the last day. And what about John chapter 10? I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand, says Jesus. Or Philippians chapter 1. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Of course, like the prodigal son, a true believer can have a period when they drift away, but then later return. And of course, like Judas, a person can look like a true believer, but in reality, they're not. But perseverance does mean that every person who is a true believer will be saved in the end. But now the tenth and final element of salvation is glorification. And this, my friends, is the end of the process. It is our final destination. It is the goal of our faith. For at the conclusion of our Romans passage, we're told that after being predestined and called and justified, that we will be glorified. And at the conclusion of our Ephesians passage, we're told of that wonderful inheritance that in the end will be ours. Now, obviously, I don't have time to even scratch the surface of what all that means. But let me quote from Erickson one more time. He says, The doctrine of glorification promises that something better lies ahead. We will be everything that God has intended us to be. In part, our glorification will take place in connection with death and our passage from the limitations of this earthly existence. In part, it will occur in connection with Christ's second coming, that we will thereafter be perfect and complete. That is sure. And so, friends, we reach the end of a long journey, a journey from eternity past to eternity future. But I truly hope that it has helped us to understand salvation better, to understand it in all of its fullness. For my friends, the Lord our God chose you and I before creation even happened. Without us deserving it at all, he opened our ears to receive his gospel. He regenerated our hearts by his Holy Spirit. He enabled us to respond to his glorious message in repentance and in faith. And as a result of these things, we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. We are forgiven and made righteous in God's sight. We have been adopted as daughters and sons of the King. And we are increasingly renewed in his image every day. And my friends, we know that those who truly believe will persevere right until the end when he will make all things new and we will dwell in the house of our Lord forever. 
dear friends, may this knowledge, may this glorious knowledge fill us with comfort, fill us with assurance, fill us with joy, fill us with praise and thanksgiving, fill us with a deep desire to love our God who did all of this for us in Christ his Son and that we might desire to serve him all all our days and to make his name known in all the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we have thought about many things tonight, many passages of your word, And Lord, as we have done so, we have sought to understand the breadth and the depth and the height of your glorious salvation. And Father, we pray that this may have helped us as we think about these things. Lord, we know that there are times we think about just one part of what you have done for us and focus on that alone. But Lord, I pray that you will help each one of us to think about all the parts of your salvation. And that as we do so, that we will grow in amazement of exactly what you have done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. That we would grow in amazement of all the wonderful spiritual blessings that we have in him. And Father, that as we do so, that we will just be filled with joy at at what you have done, but also a desire to tell others. For Lord, how could we not want everyone we know to know this glorious salvation that we have in Christ. So Lord, we pray, please help us to grow in our knowledge and our understanding. Lord, may it affect us in many different ways. Lord, may it bring us closer to you and may it fill our hearts with rejoicing. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.